0: It is on us to make sure, right, this whole strategy does not work. If the people who ski all of our resorts, individually, local resorts, small resorts, doesn't matter, they need to feel like they're getting a good experience. And if they don't, then, they, then our company is not successful.
1: Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Got a big one for you today. We'll get there, but first, I need you to visit StormSkiing.com and subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is a good platform, but it is just part of the storm. I am talking the world of lift surf skiing all year long, and I will deliver that to your inbox for free several times per week. Get in on that. You can also follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at storm Ski Journal for daily updates, breaking news, and just general buzz around the world of lift surf skiing. Before we get to Vail, let's talk about my partners. First up, SPOT. Let's face it, if you're a skier, the risk of injury is unavoidable. Meaning, if we send it too hard, we are just one crash away from crushing medical expenses. Not to mention, less time spent on the slopes. That's why SPOT partners with ski resorts like Telluride, Taos, and Boar to offer injury insurance with lift tickets and season passes. Spot easily integrates with any booking platform and does all the heavy lifting to ensure guests are covered on the mountain. If your guests get hurt, Spot can pay up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductible. With Spot, Skiers can focus on a full and quick recovery so they can get back in their skis and on the mountain as soon as possible. Visit stormskiing.getspot.com to partner with SPOT and provide your skiers with an amazing experience while showing them that their health and safety are top priorities, a win-win for your resort and your guests. Skiers, make sure that your mountain has SPOT so you can shred with peace of mind this season. Learn more at stormskiing.getspot.com. That's stormskiing.getspot.com. And of course, I am still proud to partner with Mountain Gazette. Issue 196 dropped on my doorstep the other week, and it is just incredible. Photo galleries exploring the Cascades, house skiing, and my home, New York City. Essays on snowboarding a zen, Alaskan expeditions, and Mammoth Mountain founder Dave McCoy. There's even a little crash course on the mysterious coyote and, of course, a moving look at skiing in Afghanistan before the country fell to the Taliban. But hey, don't just listen to me. Listen to my man, at Isaac Gardner, on Twitter. Here's what he said upon receiving his issue. Quote, I had heard the hype from at Storm Ski Journal, but this is more beautiful and even more appealing after only a four kid bedtime flip through, than I had imagined. Thanks at Skiing Rogie, thanks so very much. I need this this season and for many more. And quote, don't miss the next one. Subscribe now, enter code GOHIRE 10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions over at MountainGazette.com. This code is only valid for listeners of the storm, Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, Go higher. Episode 71 Rob Katz, Executive Chairperson of the Board for Vale Resorts. Vale has grown so big, so fast, that it's easy to forget that there was nothing inevitable about any of this. 30 years ago, Vale was just one of many large western ski resorts. It was always a great mountain, but it was far from the biggest name in skiing. Now, Vale is everywhere 40 resorts in three countries and the epic pass knits them all together imitators abound and no wonder the product is cheap and brilliant it changed how we ski and how we think about skiing some of the change has been great and some of it has been tougher to manage both for skiers and for Vale itself today we will hear all about it from the guy who led the company to the top of skiing let's go My guest today is the Executive Chairperson of the Board of Vail Resorts. Vail owns and operates 40 ski areas in three countries and 15 U.S. states, including the largest ski areas in the United States, Canada, and Australia. He has served on Vail's Board of Directors since 1996 and was the company's CEO from 2006 until 2021. Under his leadership, Vail Resorts launched the industry-changing Epic Pass, grew from five resorts to the largest ski company in the world, and became a ski industry leader in environmental sustainability and racial and gender equity. With his wife, Elena Amsterdam, he is founder and board member of the Cats Amsterdam Foundation, to which he has donated more than $180 million to address behavioral health challenges in mountain resort communities and to support organizations that are working to address racial justice challenges across the United States. Rob Katz is my guest. Rob, so good to have you on the program today.
0: Great to be here, Stuart. I appreciate you doing this.
1: Rob, I want to start way back here. Did you grow up skiing, and if so, where?
0: Uh, I did grow up skiing. Uh, I started skiing, actually, I think my first ski experience was on a small bunny hill outside of a hotel in the Catskills um, mm. that had one, one slope and, a, and <laughs> a rope tow that I used. But then I, I graduated in later in elementary school and early in middle school to a couple of trips that I took to Hunter Mountain. Uh, and that is really where I, you know, I, I started skiing. Um, and then uh, no one in my family actually was a big skier. My dad, my mom, my younger brother um but both of my uncles uh actually got into skiing and one uncle in particular uh was very passionate about it and so I actually tagged along with uh their family uh and took some trips to Killington and to Sugarbush and Stratton and ultimately uh they bought a home at Stratton and so I actually uh really had a, probably most of my skiing until uh you know I went to college uh and started working most of my skiing was at Stratton Mountain.
1: And what appealed to you about skiing as a kid, Rob, that made you want to just, whatever way you could, get out there with your uncles, go to Stratton, go to Killington. What about it and being out there did you love?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, and on those bus rides from, uh, you know, I grew up just outside of New York City in Westchester. So those long bus rides uh, up to Hunter, especially, uh, and then coming down with, you know, my jeans, cold uh, and wet (laughs) (laughs) on the bus. Yeah, sometimes you'd wonder why why you're doing that. And I just love the freedom of it. I I felt to me like to just, you know, I think especially as a kid, right, the freedom to go around the mountain uh, with all these kind of outdoor uh, challenges and, you know, obviously going through bump runs, going through steeper terrain on ice, especially in the East Coast at that time, you know, Mm -hmm. that all of that, I think, was really motivating to me. And, And honestly, in many ways, I I feel the same way today when I ski, you know, I just have this, this incredible sense uh, of freedom, uh, you know, as you pick your lines, you know, down any run uh, at any resort.
1: Did you have a notion back in those days when you were taking the buses skiing with your uncles up in Vermont? Did you have a notion that you would want to maybe work in skiing one day?
0: No, (laughs) you know, never (laughs) wasn't something I, in fact, I don't think I thought I'd be working in skiing until I ultimately took the CEO job at Vale Resorts (laughs) and not because I wasn't passionate about it. I was, um, but yeah, I just, you know, I grew up, um, you know, I, I I just don't think it was something that really occurred to me at the time. Uh, so yeah, no, it wasn't, wasn't in my vision back then.
1: So how did you come to work with Vail?
0: Well um so I graduated from college uh and started to work in uh the finance industry on Wall Street in investment banking and the firm that I joined at first uh Drexel Burnham uh, uh actually went bankrupt 18 months mm-hmm. after I joined uh wow. and after they and literally everybody at the company I think it was 5000 employees uh, were let go um and I thought at the time it was like, you know, the worst thing, of course. And it was that, that, you know, could happen to everybody. But it turned out to be somewhat of a, maybe a side blessing in that um, I wound up making these relationships with a lot of different people at Drexel. And they all, you know, after Drexel folded, we all went off and did different things. And so I had these connections uh, in a lot of different places across Wall Street. I wound up joining a firm called Apollo Management uh, right when the firm started back in uh, August of 1990. And um, we started looking at investments, there were five, six of us in that New York office when we started. And um, one of the companies that we looked at was a company that was then called Gillette Holdings Inc. And Gillette Holdings Inc. owned three different businesses, uh, Vail Mountain, three TV stations, and a meatpacking plant. Uh, The synergies of that are obvious, I I would imagine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and um, actually, when we started looking at it at the time, um, you know, the focus from uh, most of uh, the investing world was around the TV stations, that that's where all the value was. And there was not a lot of focus on Vale. but uh, I think our team and Apollo in general really had some belief that there was real long term opportunity um, for Vale uh, as a company. And so we wound up making an investment uh, in uh, that company we sold off the meat packing plant sold off the TV stations and Vale Associates which is what the company was called then was um you know an Apollo investment that I was responsible for uh and so that really is how I started uh you know my time getting to know Vale so it's, it's really been around the industry and around uh you know the company now for for 30
1: years so take us back to 1990 Rob what did Vale Mountain Look like and, and did they also own Beaver Creek then? What what was the extent of this company and and the ski holdings and that little corner of the ski universe? What did it look like then?
0: Yeah, it was it was Vale Mountain and Beaver Creek Mountain, um, and uh, Beaver Creek was opened uh, I think it was in 1980, uh, and um, and that was it. And uh, didn't really have uh, uh, investments in hotels. Didn't really have too much investment in um, retail. Um, and um and certainly no other resorts uh you know i, I don 't remember exactly, but I think the, the cash flow from the company profitability from the company back then was you know maybe forty million dollars
1: yeah if we go back to that time just to to put this in perspective there's a lot of Vale was one of many large western ski resorts that could have theoretically become what vale resorts is today, right? There was nothing inevitable about this. You had Aspen with their four mountains, you had Mammoth and they have little June mountain. Uh, you have Snowbird, you have Park City, you have all these big sort of destination resorts. But if we go back in time, Rob, before Vale had any other acquisitions, before it was just Vale Mountain and Beaver Creek, what was your first, when did you first get the notion that Vale resorts or could grow into something more?
0: You know, I think it was probably two. There were two different moments in time where I think that uh, you know I, I thought a lot about that. So back in 1996, when I was on the board and working with the company, and we were looking at the potential acquisition of Keystone and Breckenridge, um, you know, I think there was a realization that that would change the company dramatically from being, I don't know, you know, a singular asset like Vale or Beaver Creek that you know was. Was maybe a, a trophy property, which is what a lot of ski resort holdings were for a lot of people at the time. And if we bought Keystone and Breckenridge, we saw a lot of strategic benefits that could come from that. But we also knew that it would make the company much more complex. It would be a much broader position within the ski industry. But there was a sense that that you know, that, that again, the the ski business as a as a business was a real opportunity. Um, And I think there was a lot of positive that happened for the company after buying Keystone and Breckenridge. But the second time that I think this really, you know, came up for me was was after I became CEO um, and we started talking about doing um, a destination kind of season pass, like the Epic Pass. And at that point, there was really this sense of, was there a way, because there were people that owned multiple resorts, right? uh, At different times uh, during the history of this industry but there was usually not a way that people brought them together in a way that actually the guest got more. Um, you know, there, in other words, it didn't matter to people that, you know, a, a company might've owned a resort in Tahoe or a resort in the East or, you know, a resort in Colorado or whatever it, it was, you know, they, it was just kind of like, a you know, a collection of jewels or something, you know, you had a lot of nice resorts, but you didn't actually pull them together. And I think, you know, uh, early on in my, you know, CEO tenure, me and the whole team talked about was there a way to really make a change in that, in that we could actually by owning more resorts deliver more value to the guests.
1: So, was the Epic Pass? Were you acquiring resorts along toward this goal of creating some sort of pass product, or did you get to the point where you had Keystone, you had Breckenridge, you had this deal with Rapid Basin, and you and you had Heavenly? And then you were, and then you tried to figure out the mechanics behind the Epic Pass. So what was the order of that? Yeah, I
0: think, you know, I think the, you know, I remember very distinctly a, um, you know, I I became CEO in 2006 and I think we had an offsite, executive offsite in 2007. And we were talking about different ideas that could help to transform the company Um, and, And I think the thing that we all talked about that was, of course, everyone understood was that the ski industry historically faced huge challenges because of weather variability. Uh, And that was really what was holding back, um, you know, a more consistent performance, a more consistent experience, more consistent investment in the resort industry, more consistent employment um, and community support and you know back in the 80s and 90s it was very common that you know if you had a bad season you know uh, resorts would stop investing they would furlough employees for uh, you know half a season they would furlough people in the off season so that they could make ends meet because it was a very tough business you know as a, i'm sure you know right resort numbers the number of resorts in the US were declining significantly mm-hmm. actually in the 80s and 90s and so we were talking about why, what, what, what was that issue? And 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 it, you know, we really focused on weather variability. And of course, you know, we also were talking about the fact that it was likely to get worse with with climate change um, coming and so and happening. And so the question then was, well, how would you address that? I mean, there were a lot of environmental uh, moves that we that we could make and did make to do the right thing for the environment, but how could we? actually make a change in the business model to help protect both our company, our employees and our communities. Uh, And so we said, well, if we could get people to buy their skiing before the season began, well, then that would be a way to do that. And of course, everybody like laughed. (laughs) Well, how could you do that? (laughs) Because at the time, of course, nobody was doing that. And of course, there were discount tickets, as you remember, you would buy as you drove up to resorts and everybody was buying their skiing the day of. And, um, But we spent time talking about that and we felt like, yeah, if we were going to be able to do that, it would have to be something, a product or an offering that was a deep discount um, to what you could otherwise get. Uh, And and it would have to have more resorts attached to it. And, And we should note that the Colorado Pass and some of the other Colorado products, there were a couple of others throughout the U.S., had started before this, but they were highly fenced. The theory was you don't want anybody but locals to get them. Um, And what we were talking about was, no, making this available around the world. And we knew that we would have to, you know, have more resorts in the offering if we were going to do that.
1: So how tough of a sell was this, Rob? As you think back, because you have to convince the board that this is not going to sink your company. And you had a a very nice uh, season pass to Vail Mountain, which was somewhere in the neighborhood of $1,900. And... You're coming up with this proposal that says, okay, we're going to cut the price of a Vale Mountain Season Pass, one of the best ski resorts on the continent. We're going to cut it by $1,300 and we're going to fold it in with all these other resorts. How tough of a sell was that to all the folks that you had to convince that, okay, this is not some harebrained idea? This is going to work and it's going to change our company. Uh,
0: Yeah, I think it was. I think there was a big gulp factor um, uh, that everybody felt, uh, including me. You know, I, I, I did. Because I you know you have this sense that you, sure you're you're gonna be lowering the price of a season pass. A lot of people who are buying that season pass are now gonna be paying a lot less. Of course, we're gonna get less revenue. Um and there was a sense that we were changing the the model, um I think, of the business a bit. Um, and uh, you know I think uh, actually, you know before we launched this the the epic pass, um I actually reached out to a couple of other resort owners think knowing that it would make the Epic Pass better. And yeah, the response I got, of course, (laughs) was you're crazy. You know, why would we lower the price? No, we're not going to do that. Um, And I think there was some sense on the board around that as well. Um, But I also think that there was this other sense, which was everyone understood that, that protecting the overall skiing ecosystem from weather variation was so critical, like almost an existential crisis that i think there was a sense that we had to do something risky to do that the second piece that i think has not been as well understood when you look back is that we also had to convince all of our resorts at the time that they were going to kind of you know have this new brand the epic pass brand that was going to be a primary selling channel for their resort in addition of course to their own brand but everyone of course just like today very protective of those individual and unique and amazing brands. And so there was a fair amount of internal selling that had to go on to get people to be comfortable to make the Epic Pass like a primary channel um, for for these resorts. And, and in some ways it it goes to uh, I think again it's something that again you know not as reported on over the years, but you know, kind of the the leadership and culture work that had to happen within the company to make this possible right around we're all in this together (laughs) we've got this very challenging future ahead and um so anyway yeah a lot lots of naysayers and i think as you may remember you know after we announced it uh there was a lot of naysaying (laughs) right you know right afterwards people thinking we were crazy it was a mistake um that it was gonna you know and i'm sure we'll get into it you know flood the market with skiers and this and that um but yeah, a little, definitely some nail biting <laughs> heading up to the launch.
1: At what point, Rob, or was there a point where you knew that this worked? This was going to be a successful product? This is what you were going to base the future of the company on?
0: Um, you know, I think that first year, I think there were two things that probably um, came through. One was that uh, there was tremendous enthusiasm for this. And I think, you know, we had done our own math and our own numbers on this, and we felt like this was a good deal for the company because we felt like um, that although it was a great discount and people were were thrilled about it, yeah, that we were, that our guests were going to be sharing in the risk of the season with us. And for sharing that risk, you know, they were going to get a great deal. And so we felt like it was a good deal for us. And I think when I saw the initial reaction of how passionate people were about the Epic Pass how many we sold right off the bat, I think I realized, oh, wait a minute, we have a situation here where the company thinks it's a great deal for us and our guests think it's a great deal for them. Wow. That doesn't always happen. Right. And so I felt like that was a pretty unique moment, but I think I also learned something else, which is we identified like what we thought the total size of the market was at that point for for a season pass. And it was definitely, um, and it was, you know, sizable and we didn't come close to that in our first year. And one of my lessons was that even if something's a good idea, it takes years to educate your consumer, to shift consumer behavior, to continue right, the discussion uh, and building on it, to communicate with your guests, all of that. And so that was another lesson. So even though I think it was a great success in that first year, I also saw right away that just because it was a good idea, it was going to take years to actually fully come to you know, what we thought the vision was.
1: There seems to be another and I've written about this a lot, Rob, there's another component of this that I think is psychological. And I think it it's a benefit to the skiers. because I don't know how much they're thinking that they're sharing the risk with you. I think they're seeing a good deal and grabbing it. But w- what the Epic Pass has done, and especially as, other, as your competitors have followed this template, is it has transformed the season pass from a sort of rarefied locals product to what is essentially an everyman's product. And, and I think that the psychological shift there is huge because you're making someone feel included because they're a season pass holder and that feels cool. And skiing is, is you know, let's face it, it's a sport that doesn't always make its participants feel good about themselves. So I'm not sure if that's something that you planned or if that's just something that happened, but I'd love to get your thought on that element of it.
0: Uh, absolutely. I think it was something we talked a lot about at the time that that there was um, a sense that if you were a season pass holder, you were kind of part of the community um, broadly defined, right? Not just the people who live there. And I do think that uh, we felt like broadening that sense of community was important in part because, and I think we all know this, right? Skiing and, and snowboarding is a bit of an identity, right? It's, you know, you are a skier, uh, you are a snowboarder. It's not the same as, oh, I, you know, I go to a spa. Right. You know, it's not quite the same identity piece. And so we knew that if we could connect into that, it would be a positive. And we also know that it created some negative reaction at the time uh, because there was some sense from many locals that we were expanding that universe. um, And, you know, there was pushback around that. Uh, and, And in some ways, maybe, you know, still to today, some pushback that's going on around that piece. But something our company, I think, has always felt, which is that, you know, yeah, we're all super passionate about the, you know, the kind of intense, uh, I don't know you, know, you know, skier and snowboarder that, that you know, is, is an expert and can ski all over the place. But at the same time, right, we wanted to broaden the market as much as we could and also get people to ski more days. And that's another big factor here, right? When you are paying, you know, out of pocket for every day you're skiing, you think about it differently than when you have bought a season's worth of skiing. And one of the things that we saw right off the bat, which I think is still going on today, is a lot of people on these passes might only ski a couple of hours a day, you know, because they feel like, well, I've already paid for the skiing and I'm going to get out (laughs) there and take a few hours, you know, and, and yeah, it doesn't cost me anything. Where if you were buying lift tickets, well, a lot of those folks wouldn't even get up on the hill.
1: That's right. So, so we're, obviously the product worked out. It's, it's, uh. the the dominant name in skiing, and gets you access to 40 different ski areas as of next year. So let's just pause here, Rob, and go back and and quickly go through how that empire grew from Vale and Beaver Creek back in 1990, when you first got involved with the company, to 40 different resorts over three continents, including the biggest resorts in Australia, Canada, and the United States. So you already mentioned Keystone and Breckenridge and bringing those into the portfolio. And then you moved into Tahoe. And in 2002, you picked up Heavenly. I believe it was 2010. that You picked up North Star. And then Kirkwood came shortly after that. So talk about moving out of Colorado and why you had the confidence that Vail's model or, or that you could succeed in California.
0: Well, I think there was a real sense that we were going to take a different approach to how we grew the company, and and instead of just looking for resorts that maybe we like to ski at, or were you know great brands or something like that, on their you know uh, just being that, we were really looking for how do you create a network of resorts that would provide more value to the guest or passholder, and. And so, you know, of course we identified, right, there are some core markets, um, you know, in North America for skiing and uh, top that Colorado was one, but of course we already, you know, um, had four great resorts in Colorado, uh, but another one was Tahoe. And so, you know, we bought uh, heavenly and then really felt like, uh, you know, if we bought Northstar and then ultimately we bought Kirkwood that we could provide a very unique offering to uh, everyone in Northern California, uh, and destination guests, right, from other parts of the country. Uh, and that those three resorts were were different, right? And I don't think anyone mistakes Heavenly for North Star or for Kirkwood. Mm-hmm. They're very right. unique resorts. The base areas are very different. The mountains <laughs> are very different. And a lot, and this is a question, right, that's come up a lot over the years about, well, but but maybe, you know, does Kirkwood fit the, you know, Vale Resorts model or does Heavenly fit it, you know, or because it has casinos at the base. And You know what we've really tried to you know remind people is that we're looking for differences that keeping these resorts unique is actually not only do we think you know that that's important because they do have unique brands that go back a long way that are not about bell resorts at all but it's because actually that's what the guest wants they want choice they want different experiences uh and so yeah we basically would you know we look at a map right of, of north america or the world and we'd say okay. Where are the regions that people, you know, def, you know, go to ski? Where are the regions where having connections right between them would make sense? So even Colorado and uh, Tahoe, yeah, our view there was there are a lot of people in San Francisco who uh, would go up to Tahoe, but also take a trip to Colorado, even more so when we when we purchased Park City. Right? It was like, oh wait a minute, people do like to go from uh, from Tahoe to Park City, Tahoe to Colorado. Uh, And so that's a big benefit when, you know, we bought Whistler. Well, people from, uh, you know, Northern California also go to Whistler, right? And even Australia, a lot of people were like, well, you bought, why did you go out to Australia to buy resorts? What did that have to do with anything? And it was because people from Australia come to North America um, to ski in very big numbers um, (laughs) pre-COVID. And so... You know, and, and and what we saw was, was that actually a lot of them came post Christmas. So they would typically spend Christmas in Australia and then post Christmas, which is typically, you know, a, a um, uh, you know, a lower point during the season, they would come to North America. So the sense was, wait a minute, if we could put all these resorts on the same path, we could pick up these kind of natural skier migrations and pick up more days and have the guests feel like, yeah, this is a huge Value for them. Every time we bought a resort, um, you know, we have not, you know, increased the price of the pass to reflect that resort. I mean, it's gone up with inflation over time, but, but I think you know, our pass holders have felt like, wow, every year they get this kind of almost surprise of of new experiences that they can engage in.
1: And in many cases, the price of a pass at the resort that you purchased goes down significantly sometimes and suddenly includes the entire Vail Resorts portfolio. It's interesting that no matter the stature of the resort, you always fold it in. Whistler, uh, Park City, and and if you look at your competitor, Altera, they keep their Deer Valley Resort separate. You get a few days on the Icon Pass, but it's not included as part of the Icon Pass as an unlimited product. So just speak to that quickly. Why have you decided? No matter what we buy, even if we buy Whistler, the, the biggest ski resort on the continent, we are going to fold this in just like we will Mount Brighton, Michigan. Because
0: we think that's what it means to be part of a, you know, a unified, integrated company um, that is, you know, if, if, I mean, I guess in some respects for us, right, Vail Mountain is, of course, one of, right, the, the most, you know, well-known brand in the industry, uh, you know, incredibly... A, uh, you know, top connection to skiers and riders from around the world. And if if Vail was going to be unlimited on the Epic Pass, well, certainly, yeah, Whistler could be and Park City could be and, and North Star could be. And we really do feel like, you know, if you, if you uh, long-term, if you want to build that loyalty, I think giving skiers and riders the sense that they do have this unlimited opportunity to ski all of these resorts uh, makes a difference now some people would say, Well, but how many people are really going to ski more than five or more than ten days you know at at Whistler or more than five or ten days at you know at Vail? and it 's true that that's you know there's of course a limited number of people that would do that but i in our mind it 's the sense that you could that we do yeah. think makes a big difference for for people and we you know we have plenty of data that that shows that and by the way, we also feel like our local community, you know, deserves the same discount, you know? And so yeah. at Whistler Black Home, yeah, the price of their pass went down. Uh, you know, at Park City, it went down. At Stowe, I'm pretty sure it went down, if I remember correctly. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, and so we feel like, well, why should a local, you know, in the Stowe community be paying more, um, to have a full pass for their resort, then yeah, you know, somebody else does. So we feel like that's a, a bit of a unifying proposition. Um, yeah, you know, that's important.
1: So let's just blow through a few more of these here because I, I think it's really interesting how the portfolio grew and it and it grew in an unpredictable way. So I want to go now to Park City, which was probably Vale's most controversial acquisition from my point of view. You already owned the Canyons next door and Powder Core which owns a bunch of other ski resorts, Killington, Copper Mountain. Uh, they missed their lease renewal date by two days with Talisker Land Holdings. Vail swooped in, eventually ended up with it. So from the outside, Rob, this seemed like a very ruthless Wall Street business acquisition. But run us through this. How did Vail end up with Park City?
0: Yeah, that's probably, you know, we could probably spend an entire podcast just on that. Uh, and I, I think I think we internally may have done one that's in our Epic by Nature podcast mm-hmm. series. But I, I you know what I would say is you know the, the quick summary is that um, Canyons was owned by uh, a company called Talisker, and that same company owned not only Canyons, but the land under Park City. And we were very clear that we wanted to have a resort in Utah. And we reached out to uh, to Talisker to buy the Canyons and actually told and this is all <laughs> not just me saying it because there were all kinds of you know litigation court you know hearings and all the rest all out there it's like we actually told them we just wanted to buy the canyons and we didn't really want to get involved with park city but they really told us that if we were going to buy the canyons we'd have to take over this issue you know issue so to speak with park city and um but at this, but i would say yeah no doubt we we absolutely felt like okay you know we'll we will be willing to do that um in part because we thought that there was a very unique opportunity not just to add park city to to Vail Resorts, although of course there was, but to combine Park City and, and Canyons. And which is something that, you know, the owners of those two resorts had talked about for decades and never did. Mm-hmm. And so we felt right. like there was a unique opportunity for us to do that. And that actually the overall experience for guests, um, by having Park City and Canyons combined and by having that total resort on the Epic Pass would be a huge positive broadly. And, um, and, you know, I, I look back and I certainly, I don't like the, the you know, some of the contention and, and um, you know, the challenge, uncertainty that we went through in that uh, acquisition. But I'd also say that I feel great about what we did um, and what that resort is today and how amazing an experience it is and how candidly it's, yes, it's brought value to the Epic Pass, but of course that brings value to all the people who own the Epic Pass and the Epic Local Pass. And uh, I think, you know, so I feel, you know, I feel great. And I do think in this industry, you know, I I think sometimes uh, there are some, there's an amazing industry in so many ways, but there are also some constraints. Uh, And I think if, you know, if you want to really help transform the industry, sometimes you've got to lean in and be a little aggressive.
1: Well, the very next year, you were certainly aggressive at picking up Whistler, one billion dollars. You purchased that resort in 2016. Uh, just talk about the acquisition of Whistler, Rob, and how much that accelerated Vale's growth.
0: Yeah, I think uh, you know Whistler is is uh, in many ways uh, you know one of the most unique resorts in North America, you know, in the world, but certainly within North America. Obviously, because of its connection, not only within Canada but in, within the United States and then around the world. And it certainly has, you know, the most international presence uh, of any resort. It's obviously the biggest resort. It's an incredible ski experience, as we all know, an incredible community in in town. And um, you know, we felt like, yeah, that this was uh, uh, would be a great resort uh, for uh, for us to have within the company again to add to the Epic epicos. Candidly, also, you know, felt like, uh, and I feel like this with a lot of our acquisitions, that I think it's going to be harder and harder over time. For ski resorts to you know completely be standalone um in the face of uh climate change and weather variability and i do think uh you know i felt like that actually the the whistler the resort and the community over the next two decades yeah it would would be more successful and more protected as part of a a larger organization and honestly even in the last couple years where you know whistler does you know, so much of its business from the United States and around the world that actually, you know, it's been tough years, honestly, since COVID. And I think uh, there's no doubt that our our, our company, um, you know, has benefited from Whistler being a part of it. And I think Whistler's benefited from our support during you know what's been a a, a tougher uh, a moment in time for a resort that's largely about international visitation.
1: Yeah, Whistler certainly had uh, has been missing that international element. And then you look across the ocean to your resorts in Australia, which have been subject to many waves of shutdowns. That's something that I don't think we'll be seeing in the United States again, at least anytime soon. But you do own uh, three of the five largest resorts in Australia, Parrish or Hotham and, F- and Falls Creek. Just go back in time, Rob. Uh, there are a lot of ski regions outside of North America. Why did Australia make sense to enter first?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I shared a little bit earlier that I think the connection between Australia and, and the US because people were coming from Australia to here, I think, was the real driver. Um, and so, you know, that really drove our decision to go down to Australia. And I think uh, certainly to add Hotham and Falls Creek after Perisher just felt like we were improving, again, what we could bring and offer to, a, you know, pass holders and skiers and riders there. I mean, I, you know, when I was down there, um, you know, right after we announced this deal, uh, yeah, I mean, the enthusiasm there was massive, right? The fact that we were telling the initially Perisher, right, skiers and riders, that for the same price as they were paying for a, a season pass to Perisher, they were going to get full access to all of our resorts in <laughs> the United States, I, you know, it was almost, it was a little bit like the Epic Pass decision initially, like a mm-hmm. little head spinning, like what, what, yeah. how could that be? <laughs> Uh, and I think when we added Hoffman Falls Creek it was a little bit of the same for the Melbourne market, right Kind of like oh wow, we're getting this same opportunity um, and yes, it has been you know a very difficult time period, and I think uh, you know down under uh, because of the shutdowns and yeah, I think you know our, it's been critical uh, that you know they have uh, uh again like what you know added so much to our company, and yeah, I think it's great that you know when we can provide support during a more difficult time periods.
1: And the, the Australians—they travel every time I'm out west. I I meet Australians in the lift, and not only do they travel, Rob, they come for like five weeks at a time. Right, they do. It's true. <laughs> uh,
0: no, and I, yeah, and you know, and obviously, I'm I am eagerly awaiting putting COVID behind us when we can see that that kind of visitation again.
1: So let's just quick uh, talk quickly about the Midwest and the East. It was, I think, the whole industry was. Pretty surprised when you started buying these small Midwestern ski areas like Afton Alps, Minnesota and Mount Brighton, Michigan. And the idea, as articulated at the time, was to cultivate these veiled Destination skiers by reaching them in these large urban areas where they live and incentivize them to take their vacation out west. In retrospect, did those acquisitions do what you wanted them to do?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And definitely was another head scratcher, I think, right when we first purchased um uh, Afton Alps and Mount Brighton. I think uh, it's, you know, both within the industry and from a lot of investors at the time, sure. shareholders yeah. who were wondering, yeah. right, what that was about. And, you know, our message was pretty clear that we, this was about right, the guest. And um, of course, it's true that Afton Alps and Mount Brighton, uh, you know, were not Vale and not Whistler, but, but they were located close to millions of skiers, you know, or or hundreds of thousands of of skiers in those markets (laughs) and millions of people. Right. And and in the end, I think that in our minds, right. One, most people start skiing at these small resorts. We came up with a phrase to describe it around it's where Epic begins. And it's because, you know, you know, these, these local and regional uh, resorts are critical to the long-term survivability, I think of the industry and um, and they were in decline, right? I mean, again, for, for 80s and 90s, uh, really in, uh, you know, really going downhill. And I think it was hard for a lot of these resorts to be competitive. A lot of the resorts were not seeing investments by anybody. Um, and we felt like it was critical for us to um, to purchase these resorts, to invest significant dollars in those resorts. Um, and uh, they absolutely have, have uh, uh, contributed to our company. Uh, in huge ways and uh candidly i think have uh yeah been better than we expect and it's why we've continued on that path now it's also true that that these small resorts have very unique challenges that are very different <laughs> right than our bigger resorts and you know mm-hmm. we're you know the reason why they many of them were struggling over you know decades yeah that we, we you know that's not something our company can you know change right away but But there's no doubt. And I would say the same is true for a lot of these regional ski areas um, that we've purchased as well, including in the east. And, you know, I think we felt, you know, my view on the east, um, you know, when I first started working in the ski industry, you know, I was looking at, uh, you know, a company called SKI uh, at the time. uh, And uh, that was ultimately uh, purchased by American Ski. But one of the things, of course, we looked at in the east was it was a very challenging business dynamic because of how variable the weather was. And so, you know, when we were looking at the East or the Midwest, uh, you know, we felt like it was critical that these resorts be part of something larger than just that resort. Because if it was just going to be about that resort, right, that, you know, that might not have survived over the next 10 or 20 years. But if they were part of a larger offering, um, where, again, the ability for somebody to go to some of these small resorts uh, was going to drive them to be a more committed and loyal skier uh, and rider, then yeah, that was, that was something we thought could be transformative and we feel like
1: it has been. It's, it's sort of mind blowing to think about, but five years ago, Vail Resorts did not have any presence in the East at all. Then one by one picked up Stowe in 2017, Okimo and Mount Sunapee in 2018, the whole Peak Worth resorts for portfolio in 2019. And then just recently the, the three Seven Springs resorts in, in Western Pennsylvania. What was it that you saw about the East, Rob, that made it so compelling to you?
0: You know, it's obviously our resorts across uh, North America, of course, do a huge business with all the metropolitan guests in the metropolitan areas up and down the the eastern coast. And I think, um, you know, yeah, we really felt like creating a connection between resorts like Stowe and Okemo and Mount Snow uh, and all the other resorts like Hunter, (laughs) where I started skiing, (laughs) and in Pennsylvania. Yeah, that these that th- that connection, right, would be a powerful message to skiers in those areas that buying a pass and making a commitment, sure, to our pass, but also to the sport for the season, um, would ultimately, uh, yeah, provide value. And I think we've seen right great success from that strategy because it's not again, it's not just about any. This is true about our company as a whole, right? It's not about any one resort, right? The power both in how we drive value for our guests and in how we ultimately drive value for the company, how we help protect the industry is, yeah, by, by joining together.
1: So you mentioned some of the challenges of running a ski resort in the East. And I think because of the way you acquired these as bundles of businesses, in most cases other than Stowe, which was a one-off, you got some really good resorts like Mount Snow and Okemo and Hunter that had the snowmaking down, they had the infrastructure, and you got some resorts that were frankly in pretty rough shape. Wildcat, Aditash have been slow to open, uh, they've had a lot of lift issues. So as you assess and as you kind of sort of settle into the region, what's your plan for how you're going to bring all of the resorts up to Vail standards and, and, and fix them up so that you can get them going earlier in the season and give people the experience they're expecting?
0: Well, one thing I would say is I think it's important you know, in terms of like what the Vail standard is, so I don't think we don't have a singular, quote, standard for every single resort because the resorts are unique and they are different. And to your point, their natural topography, the market they serve, the, the business dynamics are all different. We do have a standard, though, for safety. Uh, and so, you know, which which has been a focus of our company for decades. Uh, that's yeah, that 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 you know, we never compromise on and so certainly our first priority with any resort is making sure that uh we go in there and ensure that everything that's happening is up to our safety standards and we're not going to operate a lift or terrain or anything else unless yeah it meets those and so that's that's certainly first and foremost the second piece is yeah absolutely we're going to be making investments uh in in every aspect of the resort um and i think we have if you look back over time i think you have uh you know a terrific track record for that and It's also true that, you know, we purchased a lot, especially the resorts that came with Peak, even Triple Peaks, which was, you know, Okemo um, and Sunapee and Crested Butte, right? We purchased those and and then certainly Peak right right before the pandemic. So certainly over the last couple of years, right, the focus of the company has been navigating the pandemic and, you know, hasn't been kind of just business as usual in terms of, you know, our our normal approach to how we might bring up the experience. But we are fully committed and I, I think, you know, in our mind, you know, uh, yeah, each of these resorts has an experience that it's that it's our responsibility to uh, to improve. And and it doesn't mean that we don't have uh, a misses and it doesn't mean that we're not going to have issues at times. We will, especially when the external environment is so challenging. But but we are fully committed to this strategy around the smaller resorts and regional resorts.
1: So you now own quite a bit in the East. And with the pickup of Seven Springs, Laurel, and Hidden Valley, Vail now owns eight of the 22 public ski areas in Pennsylvania. And those eight, I would venture to say, probably account for well over half of the actual skier traffic in the in the state of Pennsylvania. And I'm, I'm personally, frankly, a little concerned about the concentration of Vail ski area ownership in Pennsylvania, because the more you own, the fewer independent checks there are, to ensure that you have to deliver this high standard of operation. Just one example: Big Boulder for many years was the first ski area in Pennsylvania to open, and Vale appears to be to have abandoned that tradition. How can skiers be certain that Vale will commit to fully opening its Pennsylvania mountains and strive for the longest possible seasons?
0: Well, I think two things. Number one is I would say, um, you know, I, I guess I'd make the case that you know our company has, of course, been acquiring resorts over many years, and I think we. If you look across the broad track record, um, I think that uh, we have invested in the resorts. And as we talked about earlier, right, we have actually lowered the price, particularly for, right, local skiers, any, you know, regional skiers, skiers that are willing to commit before the season. I think they've not only gotten a lower price, but they've actually gotten access to all these other resorts. And so, you know, very often for most of the resorts, uh, uh, all the resorts that we've purchased, we see tremendous enthusiasm from from those historical skiers, because they see an opportunity for them to not only get a, a, a ticket to their local resort, but obviously get access to all these other, and for the Pennsylvania resorts, regional resorts, right, coming up to to Hunter and to Vermont and to be able to go out west. So I think that that is a compelling, you know, proposition. I think, on you know, it is also true, though, that we do look at all these resorts. And, you know, I, I think, yeah, we want to make sure that, uh, and I can't speak to exactly what's, you know, the the opening dates um, for our Pennsylvania resorts this season. But I do know that we certainly will look at resorts and say, listen, does it make sense for this resort to open at a time, especially for resorts that may have to rebuild their entire terrain and how many skiers are going to go on those days? And I think, sure, is there a financial piece to that? There is a piece to that, but there's also a sustainability piece to that, which is, yeah, does it really make sense right, um, to do that? Now, by the way, we have resorts like Keystone, um that are yeah amongst the first to open uh in the season we have resorts like breckenridge which are like the last to close uh and so yeah of course we're always going to do that in the markets where they make sense but yeah it is important right that that we especially in a resort where you could make a lot of snow uh have you know a hundred skiers and then have rain and then you're making the whole resort again so to do that in you know you know well before we ever even get to the holidays yeah there can be challenges with that and I don't think, you know, that's just about making sure that we're being smart, you know, and, and, but that said, yeah, we, uh, it is on us to make sure, right. This whole strategy does not work. If the people who ski all of our resorts individually, local resorts, small resorts, doesn't matter. They need to feel like they're getting a good experience. And if they don't, then this, then, then our then our company is not successful.
1: All right, Rob, let's talk about day tickets here a little bit. So the Epic Pass has been really great for, as we've discussed, expanding that, that pool of season pass holders, which is certainly the biggest it's ever been. At the same time, uh, day ticket prices, walk-up ticket prices have gotten very, very high. Vail and Beaver Creek are topping out at 239 this year. I'll make the point that your competitors, Steamboat and Deer Valley, are leaving you in their dust at 269 and 249 respectively. So I, I think the question becomes, you know, what's the ceiling here? And, and I understand the strategy. You're trying to incentivize folks to buy early, but this is, it's just such a bad look for the industry. And my question for you is, is this really the best idea we have? Because I, I look at this, Rob, as the next opportunity for skiing to solve. And, and I think it can be solved. And I think Vail can solve it. But to me, having a walk-up price over $200 is is problematic in a number of ways.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I'd say two things. One is I, I, I think that this, that the historical strategy around lift ticket pricing has been, you know, to somewhat accurately price it to, to the risk, right, that the resort faces by, you know, so if in the end of the day you say, well, you're going to put all this money into running a resort and people are going to only buy, let's say, let's say nobody bought a season pass, people only bought lift tickets when it's a powder day. Well, that's not a sustainable model, right? Unless you're charging a crazy number because, right, there's a lot of money that goes into maintaining a resort for full season. And so I think the theory here is, listen, and by the way, it was always true that if you bought a you know, walk-up ticket, you paid the highest price. If you bought it a week in advance, you paid a different price. Two weeks before that, you paid another price. And I actually think that this dynamic has been an important dynamic for the industry which is to say listen if you want to wait to the very last minute to go skiing and make sure that the weather's perfect and the snow is perfect and yeah then you should pay the highest price and i you know i i don't now of course we have all kinds of discounts lodging discounts uh the company right has always had child discounts lift and lesson i mean so there's all kinds of ways to get in and access school programs uh you know to so where, where people can you know who want to start in the sport can access it but I, I do, you know, I'm not sure that, that uh, yeah, that our company necessarily sees the lift, the daily walk-up lift ticket price as something that necessarily has to be solved. And I think that's in particular when our company introduced the Epic Day Pass. And so, you know, at this point, you can buy a single day ticket to any one of our resorts um, at a deeply discounted price as long as you buy it before the season. And we're the, you know, largely the only company doing that at this point where you can buy a single or two-day ticket. So at this point, like we are really providing, right, quote, season pass prices to everybody. And I do think that, the, um, yeah, that that's just, you know, I, I understand people saying, well, I don't want to make the decision before the season starts. But of course, that really changes, right, the dynamic for the resorts and I think the local communities. Uh, and And that's, yeah, I think that's, we're going to struggle to change that because I think, weather variability is, you know, going to be more challenging in the future, right? And so I think the question is, right, how is the industry changing its approach to pricing and products to help address them?
1: Yeah, and I, I think one, one of the ways to address that whole dynamic, Rob, is just to look at and, and possibly streamline that customer journey or that customer experience. So if I go on to valemountain.com and I want to buy lift tickets and I want to do it when Epic Passes are still on sale... I can still go buy $250 or $220, whatever it is, lift tickets for Vail Mountain for Christmas week. And there's no prompt in there or, or uh, pop-up that says, hey, by the way, you could buy uh, Epic Day Passes or you could buy a full Epic Pass or an Epic Local Pass or whatever the product is that suits you. That journey seems a little clunky to me right now. And I think there's some opportunity to smooth that out and, and help educate the online consumer who may not know better that... That, by the way, not only can you save a lot of money on this trip, but you could make a second trip or a third trip uh, when you're making this this purchase over Christmas.
0: No, I, I mean, you know, and I, I have no doubt there's, I'm sure, ways that, that we can continue to improve how we communicate. I You know, I'd say I think the our entire marketing team has done a pretty good job of plastering a lot of, our you know, while we're selling <laughs> passes. You can't really go to any of our websites without seeing that, you know, that getting that message to purchase a pass. Obviously, we're emailing all of our guests. Uh, I'm sure you might have received one or two emails from us along the way. Uh, yeah, so, and and I think, um, you know, and I think, and I would say, yeah, we don't, it wouldn't surprise you, we don't sell that many lift tickets uh, hmm. at all while passes are still on sale. But but yeah, I, I absolutely, I think it's, it's certainly good feedback. And the truth is, you know, I think we don't want people to buy lift tickets. Uh, mm-hmm. So, right. We, yes, we, <laughs> we should bring everything to bear. Um, and, uh, but, but I do think, you know, when I look at the numbers themselves, I think the team has done a pretty good job of, of getting that message across and always ways to improve though. Absolutely.
1: I'll tell you one thing Vale has done that I really like, and this is not a well-publicized program, but I think it works really well for the lapsed skier who maybe hasn't skied in a decade, but decide, decides they want to get back into it, and they walk up to Vale and <laughs> Vale Mountain and, and discover a lift ticket's over $200. And this is your turning your ticket program, which allows skiers to apply up to $150 from the purchase of a lift ticket to next season's Epic Pass. Most folks I've found, just anecdotally, don't know about this program. What are your thoughts around the potential to grow this program as a conversion tool? Because I know that's really your goal here, right? Is let's make everyone an Epic Pass holder.
0: Yeah, I think we um, again, team has done a, I think a great job uh, at bringing that you know that that forward. You know, obviously, Kirsten, our current CEO, um, you know, who's been yeah incredible. I think at managing this entire process uh, around how we brought in our Pass program. And connected with all these guests, I think this. I completely agree with you. It was a terrific uh, innovation, um, and and I think what we're doing is communicating to people when they purchase lift tickets at the window, and I think also when uh, we email people as well. You know, after they've purchased, um, but you know, in some ways, we don't. It's not like a media, you know, thing because because we're really communicating only with people who have purchased a lift ticket in advance uh, or a lift ticket for that season. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, absolutely the team is always looking for ways that we can improve that. And I completely agree with you. It's, it's been, uh, yeah, just a great success, I think by the team and converting people who, uh, yeah, to, to be more loyal and more active skiers and riders.
1: So let's talk about this season here, Rob. Uh, you've, you've had some challenges this season, Vail Resorts had some challenges this season, but I want to start with your successes. What, What do you like about this season so far?
0: Well, I think, you know, one of the most important things I think about this season is, um, you know, there was a big change, obviously, uh, uh, you know, uh, in a number of our roles, but certainly at the CEO role. You know, I've been uh, CEO of Vale Resorts now for 15 years uh, and, you know, really felt like it was uh, critical uh, uh, that, you know, yeah, it was time for somebody else to take the baton and run with it. And, um, you know, Kirsten uh, has uh, worked at Bell Resorts and been part of this industry for now more than a decade. And, you know, I think understands, uh, yeah, the guest and, uh, the skier and rider and the experience, uh, and yeah, I couldn't be more thrilled to see her take, uh, the, you know, the reins of this company. And, you know, I, I feel like the transition, which is never easy, you know, has been, uh, you know, incredibly successful, um. You know, I obviously <laughs> tough. Uh, you know, for for that to happen in the middle of a challenging COVID dynamic and creating challenges in operations, but of course, that's all. I mean, all everything about this season, uh, obviously. You know, is very much in you know on me in terms of the plan, right? That was done for this season and all the different decisions we made to get to this point. Um, but what I would say is another success that I've seen, and this is really all about Kirsten and our team at the company is. Is the way yeah they're reacting to it, you know. And I think one of the issues I always used to talk about how uh, when you know you know everyone's going to have issues, problems, misses, mistakes, uh, decisions they make that maybe they wish they would have done differently. And the only difference is what you do when you see them. They come up in this case, right? These are (laughs) these are my issues, but the team, Kirsten and the team, have done yeah really jumped all over it to start making changes uh, to ensure that we. Um, you know, improve the experience, and and you know, obviously, uh, continue to both meet and exceed guest expectations. Um, and I would say one of the other successes is just the yeah, the fifty plus thousand employees across our company um, who are you know dealing in you know one of the most challenging environments ever. In some ways, more challenging; many ways, more challenging than last year, which was a challenge uh, just because. We have um, a lot of demand uh, and, um, you know, and obviously uh, the staffing, especially uh, as we went into the holidays, right, because of COVID uh, in particular, yeah, that, that just, you know, wasn't where we wanted it to be. And, um, you know, the folks at the company, I think, have done an incredible job of uh, showing up and, you know, putting the absolute best experience we can forward uh and you know i have heard from so many people even though of course we've had challenges and i'm happy to talk about them but i also think right there you know truly right millions of guest experiences that have been incredible across our resorts uh over the last month and that only happens because of these folks um who are on the front lines providing it
1: and you recently announced a two dollar per hour bonus for all employees talk about that
0: yeah, I think, you know, we went into this season knowing, you know, I think that staffing was going to be a challenge. Um, I mean, it's it seems uh, hard to believe, given, you know, I know, of course, some of the staffing challenges that we've had. But you look backwards and, you know, we knew we were taking all kinds of steps uh, back last spring. And in the summer, uh, we raised our our minimum wage uh, to from twelve twenty five to 15 through most of our resorts. I think in the east, we had like a 40 percent increase in the minimum wage. Many of these minimum wages, of course, preceded our company in terms of what a lot of these resorts were paying before Vail Resorts even showed up. Um, And yet, yeah, I think, you know, got into, you know, mid-December and uh, all of a sudden, yeah, in a tight staffing market, you're watching, you know, COVID cases rise dramatically. I think think nationwide, we saw a sevenfold increase in the average daily COVID case. An average number of daily COVID cases from like December 21st to January 10th or something like that. Wow. And, you know, had more than 10% uh, of our employees, uh, you know, out sick or out with symptoms or out with COVID, um, you know, during this time period. Uh, and so I think, you know, yeah, I think the team, Kirsten in particular, and I think the team got together as we're seeing this go through uh, uh, the holidays and said, okay, like, you know, the folks who are here at this company are doing incredible work and we need to recognize that work and we need to compensate for that work. And I, you know, completely support their decision. Uh, I think it was a great decision to put the bonus program in place. Um, And yeah. And I think also she made the comment and uh, you know, I completely support it as well that she's going to, and the team is going to personally take a look at right. All of our, you know, experiences from this season, including wage dynamics and figure out like what is the right approach for next season? Um, you know, in addition, you know, as we move on from this bonus, with Jens at the end of the season, you know, what do you do going forward? Uh, and and that, 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 you know, in my mind, again, I think that's exactly the good news. Well, the bad news for some people about our company is that we are about change and we change things. And a lot of people, you know, within the ski industry don't necessarily like those changes. But the good thing is we're willing to change. And I'm thrilled to see that Kirsten is kind of carrying on that mantle.
1: So let's talk about some of these challenges that Vale has been facing this year and, and see what you have in mind for the, for the future. So Stevens Pass, as of today, has gotten 213 inches of snow, was 44% open today. Meanwhile, El Terra's Crystal Mountain has 77 of 85 trails and all 11 lifts open. This is the issue that's gotten the most headlines, certainly. So how is Vale going to get Stevens up and running to its full potential? And what steps are you taking to make sure the ski area does not fall behind again in future seasons?
0: Yeah, I think it's you know um, it, it has of course been hard. I know for um, our pass holders uh, that go to Stevens Pass and are passionate about Stevens Pass, and um, and kind of candidly for everyone working at the resort, for all of us at Bell Resorts, to to see some of the challenges that we had at Stevens Pass because they were unique, right? I mean, I think uh, you're pointing out that they're you know were unique for versus some others in that region. They were unique for versus others across our whole company, um, and so. Uh, and you know, I think there's a variety of reasons for that, and there's some you know unique things about Stevens Pass uh, that that are real and that presented challenges. They got you know uh, hit harder with COVID. I think you know at one point we had I think more than 30 percent of our lift operators out with COVID, um, and uh, and yes, it's a harder it is a harder resort to staff. It's all true. I think all of those things, though, are are on our company to to address. And again, I you know would say, you know, I I applaud uh, Kirsten and the team uh, for uh, pivoting right at Stevens Pass. The bonus itself, uh, going out, getting more housing, um, r- making sure we're ramping up hiring, bringing in a new GM who has a long history uh, with the resort, and realizing you know we typically don't do that mid season, but in this season we felt like that was probably something you know even on an interim basis that was critical and you know i think we've seen immediate results right i think so i i, I think this past season had about 70 70 72 percent or something of the terrain open i think this last sunday um i think they're hoping to get a significant more uh amount of terrain open by next weekend and obviously you know, there's still two-thirds of the season left to go um mm-hmm. so there's really an opportunity for us and I, yeah i think you know the our company we do make mistakes and there are things that happen that I think we wish maybe we would have handled differently, or, you know, maybe we didn't react quick enough, but we tend not to make the same mistake over and over. And I know that Kirsten is completely committed to that. And so I, when I think about, I have no doubt that next season at Stevens Pass, you will not see these same issues.
1: Excellent. So as we, as we look at the Midwest, you have a lot of smaller operations that are used to having these Really full throttle seasons. They're open day and night, seven days a week. And these hours, these operating hours have been really curtailed this year. You have Snow Creek in Missouri is only open three days per week. Hidden Valley Paley Peaks, all of your Ohio resorts all have limited hours. And then Crotched, and this is the one that's interesting in New Hampshire, is closed two days a week. It cut night skiing to three days a week. If you look at Pat's Peak, which is a pretty similar sized operation, just 18 miles away, they're still open eighty hours a week. So I understand this is a challenging labor market, Rob, but but why is Vale falling behind its competitors in some of these smaller regions?
0: You know, I can't. I, so I can't speak to um, each resort. I mean, I, again, and especially in my current role, I'm not really as close to it anymore since I'm not CEO. But I can't say when I look across the whole company, right, I see that our resorts have spanned the gala, right, where we have many resorts that, you know, Heavenly and North Star that are at 100 percent terrain open. Vale very close to 100 Beaver Creek, over 90. Uh, Crested Butte, close to 100. Uh, you know, uh, Keystone has all of its lifts open. Um, you know, and then we do have a handful of resorts that aren't where we would want them to be. But I think if you look at the cross the whole industry, it's not that different, right? That there are resorts that are in great shape. There are some other resorts that are having some struggles. Now, I understand that our company is higher profile and we're going to get more focus on that. It's, you know, fair. We have to live up to that. And it's not, it is not an excuse because I think it. You know, and I know, Pearson feels the same way. It's like this is our responsibility, and we have to address it. But, but I, I you know, I don't know that you know we do own thirty seven resorts, uh, and we are the you know only company that really owns this full diversity, right, of resorts across different regions and across different types of resorts. And so, yeah, I think you know, it, it in the middle of what I think everyone would agree is the worst staffing challenge ever, right? In terms of where, staff, where labor was going into the, you know this, there was just uh, information that came out that said, I think it was in November and December, that it was like a record number of people were out sick. And so and nationally, and so in the middle of that, I think I certainly understand that there are going to be some areas where we're behind uh, where we'd want to be. But again, when I look at the company as a whole and our resorts as a whole, yeah, I, I feel good about that.
1: So long-term, can we expect these resorts that have traditionally operated day and night, seven days a week, these small Midwestern resorts, your Mad River, Ohio's, your uh, Boston Mills Brandywine, is is the hope, the expectation that Vail Resorts will get them back to those traditional schedules?
0: Yeah, I, you know, I guess what I'd say, certainly, you know, speaking when I was CEO, I mean, we always adjusted schedules. And so I would say that's, uh, you know, I, I I'm sure the gms and leaders of those resorts will of course take on their own approach to that as we go forward but but yes the challenges that are related to this particular season and some of the unique dynamics no these are not uh i would not expect any of them to continue i mean at all uh and and certainly we didn't i mean we didn't go into this season thinking that this white would be our operating philosophy so i think in the end yes uh, Every resort always makes adjustments, I'm sure, and I'm sure that'll continue. But yeah, these are all things that that we want to address, not just next season, but wherever, you know, immediately if we can, right? I mean, it's not this, just like, you know, we talked about with Stevens Pass. I mean, the minute, you know, I know these resorts and their leaders, the minute they can improve on terrain or operating hours, they will.
1: All right. So zooming out for this season, you dropped Epic Pass prices by 20%. That certainly worked. You sold 2.1 million Epic Passes and then took some proactive steps to try to manage crowding. So among those were uh, updating the Epic Mix app to show lift line wait times, uh, install more efficient lift line management, limit walk-up day tickets. So I I realize, again, we're in a social media world. The worst case anecdotes get shared and reshared and probably get outsized airtime. But how happy are you with the results of Vale's crowd management efforts so far? And to what extent should we view these as a work in progress?
0: Well, I think a couple of things that are important. I, I think this is, you know, in some ways, maybe one of the most important things we'll talk about today, <laughs> you know, which is this issue about selling season passes and crowding. Um, and so um, because it it really goes to a whole variety of things. And, and I'm going to hit on a couple of things upfront about maybe this, this year. But then I I really want to talk about the issue more broadly because I think it's critical, um, you know, for the industry as a whole to wrestle with as, as you look to the future. So for this year, yes, we did sell a lot more passes. I think we said, said at the time that um, yeah, a significant number of those people are lift ticket buyers, right. Who are going to basically be on a pass instead of a lift ticket. Um, And so far, right. We, the company has announced both in our, Kirsten talked about it in her email to everyone that we have not, um, you know, our our daily max peak visitation at our resorts is not different than it has been historically, right? And so we're not seeing more peak crowds. And overall visitation is, right, is below last year and, and well below two years ago in terms of what we saw, kind of a pre-COVID year. And so I think the thought that uh, that that our Epic Pass sales have led to this crazy crowding is not true. Um, it's just not factual. Now, of course, it's true that, you know, so at somewhere like Stevens Pass, if you don't have sufficient terrain open, yeah, of course, that has a separate impact. But we have not, it is not, we. and it's when we went into this year, yes, we we wanted to make sure that, that we could manage crowds better because we've been doing that, right, for a long time. As you know, we announced some New things about Epic Mix time and lifeline wait times and projecting them, but of course, we announced Epic Mix time a number of years ago, right? So we've been, you know, this point about you know lifeline transparency has been something that that we feel is critical. But I think it goes to a kind of a broader point, which is, um, you know, putting aside this holiday season. And by the way, of course, there were lines at some of our resorts at some moments this season. Of course, there were and. And of course, we don't want anyone to wait in a long line, but that happens. And I think it's important to recognize it's been a part of the industry forever. Right. It's it's largely a part of going to any right um, um entertainment, you know, local, you know, location-based entertainment at peak days or peak times where you know it's just not possible, right? Especially within the ski industry, right? For us, we can't build more resorts. We're limited in the ability to even expand terrain. Um, so what we've done is, right, continue to invest in lifts, putting in new high-speed lifts, more lifts, higher capacity lifts. Um, that has dramatically shortened the time that people wait in line and ride the lift. And so kind of in my mind, and I don't know what you think, you know, you've been in the industry a long time. But when I look, think back to when I was skiing, you know, in the 80s and 90s, my time, right, uh, off snow, so to speak, on a lift or in a line is much lower even at peak times than it was, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. That's one point. So I think it's important for everyone in the industry to understand that. By the way, it doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to continue to invest. And as you know, you know, we announced a $300 million massive <laughs> investment in lifts for next year. So we're going to stay right. ahead of this always. But it is important to remember, right, overall U.S. ski visits haven't gone up a ton <laughs> Right. And even Vail Resort skier visits have not gone up a ton over the last decade. And so I think there is a bit of a perception, in part, because I think we're all getting used to shorter wait times, shorter lift ride times. And, and that's good. And I think that's, you know, that, that's a, that is a positive. But there's another piece to this, which is if we are lowering the price of our product and selling more, and so more people are coming into the ski industry. Well, I don't know. I guess I've never quite understood. Is that a bad thing? Because when I hear people talk about that, they don't want us to, they don't want us to lower the price and sell more. Well, where were those people skiing before them? And what I sometimes hear is people say, well, no, they want to see the industry grow, but not at their resort, at some other resort. (laughs) Right. So their resort is not crowded. And I think when you, you know, and we can talk about, of course, you know, the racial equity piece of this, but it's, you know, cause of course we, you know, that's a whole population base that we have no connection to, but I do think, you know, and again, I'm not going to speak for everybody at Vale Resorts and I'm now executive chairperson. <laughs> so that's a different role, <laughs> but I would say, I think the industry, we need to really come to grips with this, right. That we can't shut the door on the outdoors, right. We need to be willing to bring more people into our sport. well, you know, if we do that, then we need to keep investing in infrastructure and realize that yes, at peak days on December twenty-seventh, uh, Power Today, yeah, there's gonna be some crowds. And if that's the price to pay to keep the sport growing, I think we all maybe need to, you know, embrace that a little bit.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about that equity piece, Rob, because I think you bring up some good points there and and I know this was an important issue to you. So so following George Floyd's murder in twenty twenty, you sent a letter to your employees calling Vale's lack of diversity a quote, personal failing and vowing to do better. So just update us on that journey. Where are you at with that in in bringing more folks or, or making more folks feel welcome in skiing?
0: Yeah, I think this, you know, I think when I when I joined as, as CEO back in 2006, you know, I think um, I looked around and at that time, you know, it was obviously very clear that the industry was all white. At that point, I also looked around and felt like the industry was all male. And there were very few women in any leadership positions um, uh, at any resorts. And, you know, I think that that was obviously just wrong in terms of the equity of it. But I also think, right, the industry was completely ignoring and missing, right, the the potential leadership contributions from all these women who could be in those roles. And, you know, I, I feel like when I look back on the company, I do, one of the things I'm most proud about is uh, all of the efforts and progress that we made about bringing women uh, into our leadership ranks. Obviously, we have, you know, now I believe it's ten women running ski resorts. You know, when I came in, there were none. There, were, I, I think there were very few across the whole world actually at that point. You know, back in right. 2006, um, and and obviously, you know, four of our five Colorado resorts are, are run by women. Um, and obviously, now you know we have a woman running the overall company. We had a woman who was the president of our mountain division for a long time. And that's something that, you know, I think is, has been a massive success. And I think has been, uh, all about, I think the culture within the company and the leadership and career progression, that's been a huge passion of all of us, right. About making skiing, not just about, yeah, that, that, you know, you're going to have fun on the mountain, but also making this a career, uh, and a a long-term career and, um, so that's when I look back on, the, on, on diversity, equity and inclusion, I, I feel so proud of that. And yes, also feel uh, like it was a failing for me to have the focus beyond white women or white, <laughs> the white community in general and not having done enough to broaden the racial equity. And, I, and it's something that's been talked about forever. Certainly not something I noticed. Of course, you could look back on the NSAA, uh, you know, uh, reports and discussions for, for decades. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, I think the company has had a pro- prominence that I think we could have done more and didn't. So that's true. I think what we've done now is really, you know, start inside our company, right? I, I don't, I think for us to talk about the rest of the industry is not, uh, you know, is not where we need to begin. I think we need to begin in ensuring that we have a culture within our company, um, that is welcoming. Um, you know, we added a value in our company uh, about being inclusive, which sounds so basic <laughs> and, and how could that even be an issue that we didn't have it all that it 's all true, but we 've really shifted, and I would say that there's a piece of this that of course, is about the very basics of of um, racial equity and and all that but but we 've expanded in our company right to include language. how do we talk about? Right. Uh, issues of race, which I think are critical um, and are critical to any leader. But we've also talked about how we discuss, um, you know, people who are locals or people who are, you know, big skiers. Right. Uh, and, you know, I think there was a time at our company where, you know, being a, a hotshot skier was how you got a, how you would get a job. And we've tried to shift that. Right. Because. You know, obviously in these communities of color, they don't have the same experience uh, that, that other communities do within the sport. And so how do we make sure that when we talk about, you know, who we're hiring, uh, we're not focusing on, you know, who skied the most or who skied as many resorts as we have. Uh, by the way, that's true for corporate roles, but it needs to be true even in our resort roles where we need to be more open to that. And by the way, we've also really tried to combat things like Jerry of the Dead right, which I know you've seen, where people within our local communities, like, make fun of tourists, right, that there's some anti-tourist bent, because, you know, if if you're somebody uh, of color who probably already is going into an environment where they don't see too many people like them, and they're not a great skier, and they're getting made fun of, well, yeah, is it any surprise that we don't have a huge percentage of uh, communities of color within our guest base? No, not to me. And I think that, you know, this, this takes a long time, a lot of work, and this is clearly going to be on Kirsten and the team and the rest of the industry. But, but you know, 10, 20 years from now, this industry and this sport can't look like it does.
1: And I think as you make progress on that, you have some other issues that, that are growing, particularly in the West around housing, around traffic. Uh, there's been some just extra social dynamics that have really exasperated some of these these issues in the short term. So if you look out West, you have the population growth out there over the past couple decades has been enormous. And then you have the advent of short-term rentals and then COVID-era relocations on what is now a remote white-collar workforce. And what you end up with is a severe housing shortage in your, in your communities for your workers. So talk about, Rob, what Vail Resorts has done to help ensure employees have housing close to your resorts? And also, how hard is it to do that? Because in a lot of these Western communities, you have this matrix of interest that makes it very hard to build things, no matter how good your intentions are.
0: Yeah, I I think this is, um, uh, you know, I I think I was also very public about this uh, a few years ago, where I felt like coming out of the last recession, I think the company, me, I got behind on being aggressive enough around housing. And you know, we committed to spend, I think it was 30 or $35 million on new housing projects. And, uh, you know, we you know, w- you know, we're very committed and we've, we've been incredibly aggressive at looking for these opportunities. And um, yeah, and I think it has been a little surprising that there of how many obstacles there have been to, you know, uh, making these projects a reality. One, of course, you have to look for land. But even if you find the land, right, you know, it's going through the zoning process and getting the support of the local uh, neighbors and community. And, you know, I think this is not not just about mountain communities. I think this is true. If you look in my hometown of Boulder, it's the same thing, right? I I think everybody is like in favor of affordable housing, but not doesn't want affordable housing next to them. And I think that, you know, and of course, there's lots of reasons. There's traffic we don't want the traffic we don't like how it looks we there could be environmental issues you know um I, i'm not and again i'm not dismissing those concerns per se but i do think you know every one of our communities has talked about affordable housing as a crisis and i would completely agree and i think if it's a crisis a little bit like what i talked about the changes that our company has had to push through sometimes that are not very popular to try and protect the company and the industry vis-a-vis climate change, I think on housing, it's like, well, sometimes you have to push through those objections. And we do have a number of projects, I mean, one in Vail in particular, that we, you know, have have been struggling to get done, even though we have land to build something. And again, I don't want to pick that, there, there's a number of them. It's not just, you know, we have situations like that in Tahoe, we've had situations like that in a number of our resorts, And So I would say, yeah, I think our company has to be incredibly aggressive on this. But I also think that the communities have to be equally aggressive. I know some people that say, oh, well, you know, the ski resorts, not just us, but any ski resort should solve this problem. But the truth is, is that we only we're the biggest employers, you know, in our resort communities, but we're not the only employers. There's many, many other employers. And so ultimately, it is up to the community and the resort to partner and make these a reality. So certainly something I hope we can make progress
1: on. All right, Rob, let's let's wrap up with a look at the future here. Then I have a few questions about that. So so there's several US regions where Vail still doesn't have a resort. So you look at the Southwest, Southern California, the Northern Rockies, Western New York, the Southeast, meaning Virginia, North Carolina, all very good fertile ski markets where you could potentially find a whole bunch of new Epic Pass holders. Uh, can we assume that you've already considered all these regions and the right opportunity hasn't presented itself there? Or, or, or are there, in fact, regions you've ruled out?
0: No, I, I, I don't think, you know, two things. One, I can only speak to kind of the time that I was, you know, CEO. And I would say we didn't, we do don't, we don't rule out regions per se. I think, you know, um, we do feel like it's important for us to prioritize regions. And I think when you look at our company's progression, you can see that, you know we we pr- might have prioritized utah then canada or australia or then then the east or the midwest i mean you know so because we do feel like we it's, it is hard to try and do everything all at the same time but yeah. no we're very particular i mean i think you know we're looking company has never sold a resort uh ski resort and so we are looking for particular resorts in particular regions and um and that ultimately uh is you know what we think is the formula for success because the, these resorts are unique you can't i know people think sometimes we change them dramatically but the truth is you really can't change the core nature of a lot of these resorts um and so yeah when you buy them you need to be comfortable that it's really going to make a difference and it, that the resort is sustainable itself so i think i think we're going to remain aggressive on the acquisition front uh, but yeah it'll be up to kirsten and the team to assess those and decide, you know,
1: which ones are the right ones. Where do you think your biggest hole is in the United States?
0: Um, you know, I think it'd be hard to, to maybe point to a, a hole per se, because we do have, you know, I think a presence, certainly in a lot of markets. I mean, I think certainly one market that we don't have a presence in, uh, you know, that seems kind of obvious is Los Angeles. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and obviously I, I think altero has got a great presence there. And, um, you yep. You know, so so you know, it's I, I don't think we can necessarily have, you know, the best presence in every single market, and that's okay. And um, you know, but when I look, it's you know much more about the world, right? So I think where you know the markets are that we're not right now is in Asia and in Europe, and I think mm-hmm. you know those are the opportunities. And I've you know I've been talking about that, and I believe you know Kirsten feels the same way. Uh, that those are the opportunities that we you know need to focus on, uh, so that the company can have a presence there, and and I think look for fill in and kind of adjunct opportunities
1: within North America. Mm-hmm. How about South America? Yeah, I think I
0: think longer term potentially, you know, I think it's a it is it is a unique market. Uh, you know, I won't, you know, I think at, at the time that I was CEO, I felt like, um, you know, that certainly people from South America come up to the U.S., um, but. Uh, You know, it was very different dynamic than Australia um, and some different, you know, country dynamics, resort dynamics than than um, than, you know, what we what we saw in Australia. Um, But, yeah, I would say, you know, I I think I'll be up to Kirsten and the team, uh, you know, to assess that and certainly could be on the longer term plan. But, you know, it wasn't on the shorter term plan when, you know, when I was
1: CEO. You know, regardless of how aggressive you are, there's only so many resorts to buy. There's only so many that are going to come up for sale. Uh, you've made it clear that you're not going to try to build a resort. So even if you did get, say, Jackson Hole or Telluride, I mean, eventually, you, you know, there's a finite number of these things. So how does Vale keep growing as the number of available or attractive properties declines?
0: Well, I think that, you know, this is, we have to, um, uh, you know, get better at what we do. And I think that. Um, you know, I think acquisitions, I, I'm, I'm super proud of the company's track record on acquisitions. And I do feel like as we try and navigate through, right, what's going to be, you know, I, I, I didn't know that a pandemic was going to happen, but I do feel <laughs> good about our ability to weather this storm, uh, so to speak, uh, you know, given the size of our company and all the resorts that we can support through this. So I feel good about that. But but I think as we look at climate change, other economic uh, events, you know um, yeah, that I, I think that it's critical for us to uh, to have a broad, um, diverse portfolio of resorts. But at the core, right? Uh, we always have to remember that it is the guest experience and the employee experience. That is what is going to make our company successful or not. And so I think our focus has to be, and I think certainly this year, plenty of examples of areas where maybe we miss the mark, Um, you know, in a tough environment, but doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, if you miss the mark, you miss it. And the bottom line is, we need to improve. We need to, you know, be providing an amazing employee experience and delivering, uh, you know, what we call an experience of a lifetime, right, to our employees and to our guests. And that's, I think, you know, ultimately that builds uh, loyalty, that builds stability in the business. um, And I think is a great place for the company to financially grow from, again, with acquisitions, of course, as well. But but I don't think the company going forward, yeah, it should be driven by that on its own. It's it's really about how we improve what we do day in and day out.
1: Rob, how much does that get to Kirsten's unique skill set and the way that she was so well positioned for this role? Because it, looking at her background as the person who's run your Epic Pass business for a long time, who really introduced a, a data driven business model to Vale Resorts how well positioned is Kirsten, and how well how well can she position Vale Resorts to thrive in that kind of environment and and do all those things that you just outlined, which is basically identifying problems and finding the best ways to to solve them with all these very modern tools that you have.
0: Uh, you know obviously, i you know I think the world of Kirsten, she has been an incredible partner, you know for me and an amazing leader within this company for more than a decade um super passionate about the sport she you know started skiing at wilmot um which is a small even smaller resort than hunter (laughs) where i started skiing um and so i think she really understands at a very you know core level she by the way actually unrelated to me but like me moved from chicago and her job um where she was working at pepsi to move to boulder uh to be in the mountains right that was her passion and so I think she really gets it on that front. You know, most important, you know, is she's just an amazing leader. Uh and I do think it's one of the most, you know, underreported components of the Vale Resort story over the last 15 years has just been our focus around leadership, right? And building leaders. Uh, and certainly, you know, we've talked about certainly diversity, you know, on that front. But it's, you know, it's 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 also just about like having Uh, people who ultimately are good developers of talent are good uh, coaches are have a good balance you know it can certainly take tough feedback and not react to it take tough feedback learn from it uh, but stay optimistic and motivational they're balanced I tell people all the time that um, you know a great leader is like a great skier right in terms of being balanced on their skis right you don't want a leader who's so defensive they're they're in the back seat because that's not a place where you can make good decisions, but you don't want a leader who's so far over their skis, right? That they can't, you know, cause, cause guess what? The terrain, this is like a serious bump run, right? You know, to use veil, it's, this is Highline, right? That's what it's like to try and navigate big companies through this. And yeah, you gotta be balanced. And, you know, I just, I think Kirsten, um, yeah, it's just showcased, right. Those, those qualities, which, yeah, gives me all the confidence in the world that, uh, yeah. And I've already seen it this season, right? Which is you know, a tough season, but she's making the right decisions to take the company forward.
1: All right, Rob, last question for you today. Just looking to the future and, and thinking about Vale and thinking about the industry in North America and throughout the world, what does a sustainable, vital, vibrant Vail look like? And what does a sustainable, vital, vibrant ski industry look like as you face all of the challenges that we have ahead, and I don't need to enumerate them, you're very familiar with them but but what what is what does that industry need to do to thrive well into the future?
0: Well, one, I think they're one and the same, so I think for I think vale resorts can only thrive and sustain and be viable in a viable um, uh ski industry that is thriving and sustaining and actually, I do feel like you've seen that happen. I think we've had a lot of success absolutely as a company. Over the last 15 years, and the it, the industry has a lot of, has had a lot of success and stability, and more capital coming in, and better employment, more stable employment, more stable revenue for the communities, all of that. So that has to continue. I think you know we are we're big enough that we need to realize that we can only succeed when we all succeed. In my opinion, um, and I do think though, yeah, we're going to have to. I do think people are going to need to purchase their skiing in advance. Uh, I think we're, you know, I think our company, uh, you know, and Kirsten's done an amazing job of this, right, we will we'll absolutely uh, achieve, I think, a lot of that this year. Uh, and I know there'll be more for us to grow, but the industry has to do the same. Um, I think we're gonna need to, yes, the environmental footprint of our resorts and the efficiency of our snowmaking and our lifts and our snow caps. I think all of that has to get better uh, because I think that's, that's gonna be critical as we look to the future. Um, and I think, yeah, we can't, we have to make this a uh, sustainable uh, experience and successful experience for our employees. Um, you know, this, our employees are the ones who are going to be providing this experience, not just for us, but for the whole industry. And so these issues, like we talked about around housing and wages, benefits, all these things have to absolutely uh, be uh, ones that can last, you know, and be. Uh, financially successful for our employees and for the company over the next couple of decades, and I think, you know, I think our company is absolutely going to, you know, make sure that we're out in front of that, uh, and then of course the guests, right? We need to be sure that we are doing two things at once, right? Which is that we are constantly looking at how to innovate in this industry, um, uh, the guest experience, but always remembering that at the core, right, the experience is for the guests to be on snow on a mountain outside. Um, and uh, that's something that we can't ever
1: change. Well, Rob, it's. Uh, I think skiing has a bright future, and and I think Vail Resorts is going to be a big, big part of that. I really cannot thank you enough for your time today and all of your insight. And uh, and I'm I'm going to be right here watching and and very anxious about your next moves and to see how the company evolves successfully into the future. So thank you very much for everything.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, Stuart, and I appreciate uh, you taking the time. <laughs>
1: That's Rob Katz, executive chairperson of the board for Vail Resorts. Rob, thank you very much for that. A very smart person once told me that the most valuable thing you can give someone is time. And for a guy in that position, to give me that kind of time, is really a remarkable thing. I very much appreciate that, Rob. Thank you. And I very much appreciate all of you for listening. That one was a surprise. Still got a ton of good stuff coming your way. I already have episodes recorded with the Highlands at Harbor Springs, Michigan, and Tamarack, Idaho. On the calendar are Beaver Mountain, Utah, Snow Ridge, New York, Big Sky, Montana, Summit at Snoqualmie, Washington, Solitude, Utah, Little Switzerland, Wisconsin, and a couple more big ones working that I will hopefully announce to you soon to get those episodes to your inbox the moment they are live. Remember to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing Newsletter at stormskiing.com. The new podcasts hit there several hours before they appear on iTunes or Spotify or any other podcast service. The newsletter also includes lots of additional context, videos, photos, trail maps, etc. that you will not find on any podcast service. You can also follow along with the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon.
0: The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.